Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. I was at a a ministerial association meeting this week, and whoever was presenting did their presentation, and, and they finished, and then everyone clapped for them. And then one of the pastors I was sitting with leaned over to me and said, does anyone, do people clap for you when you finish your sermon? And I said, no, no, I don't think they ever do. But they always clap for Ryan. They always, they always clap for the announcement guy. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, so I just want to start off with a, a big thank you to uh, Susie Murray and Betty Hayes. They organized and put on, we had a Seder dinner uh, discovering Jesus in the Passover event on Friday night. And I know not all of you were down here, but it was such a great event. We had such a good time. We had our friends from the community church were invited to join us and a number of them showed up. And so it wasn't just a renewal city church thing, but it was a a little bit more of a community minded thing. And our missionary friend, Yoel Ben David from Israel was here with the Jews for Jesus. And it was just so great. So I know Betty's not here, but Susie is. I know people brought desserts and things, but we're just so thankful for your labor of love and uh, and having that event. So thanks. Um, I was here on, I think it was Thursday, and Joel Perez was making the table centers for the event, and um, and and I was just passing through or something. And so she just asked me, "Hey, how's the week going? What's going on?" and uh, when people ask me that, I'm trying to make a habit of stopping and just answering the question uh, so that it's more than a greeting and so that our interaction is more than just a, a, a short, yeah, fine, week's going fine, see you later. And so I stopped and I thought about my week and I told her that I was really struggling. I wasn't very excited about the sermon that I get to preach today. Um, and, oh, really? How come? And then, that's when I knew I gave her the wrong answer, right? I'm supposed to say, it's going great. God is good all the time. Can't wait to preach Sunday. It's going to be great. And, and so I explained to her that we've gotten to this part in the book of John where I feel like Jesus kind of is talking in circles a lot. And, um, and then while I'm saying this to her, I'm finding myself, I'm unplugging the copier and I'm moving it out of the room upstairs because, um, because they needed that space to prepare dinner. That was our, that room upstairs was our kitchen for the Seder dinner. And, and you said something about like, oh, so you're going to fix the copier instead or something. And then I was thinking, and it, it's so motivating to get things done when there's something you don't want to do. And so, yeah, no, I, I don't want to prepare this sermon. So I'm going to work really hard to move the copier and the paper shredder. Of course, then I had to move the copier and the paper shredder out of the preschool room this morning because we can't have those kinds of things sitting with the preschoolers, uh, little fingers and things. Um, but, it, you know, that's, that's just how it goes sometimes, right? Uh, I did my taxes recently, and you know when you should do your taxes, how nice your lawn looks and how the gutters are all clean, like everything, the car is washed, everything that, everything that I usually would put off, I will go and get done right away. Uh, when I need to do taxes. Anyhow, the, so I haven't been too excited about this sermon. You know, last week, we had the story of the woman caught in adultery. I think it's one of the most beautiful stories in Scripture. I was so excited to talk about that story. 
this week, we get into John chapter 8, and Jesus' dialogue just kind of goes on and on. There's this disagreement among the people about what is true, who is Jesus, what's going on. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 8, verse 12, if you want to turn your Bibles there. But the heading of this section is that there's dispute over who Jesus is. And then you move down a few more verses, and the next heading is there's dispute over, uh, sorry, sorry, there's dispute over Jesus' testimony first, then there's a dispute over who Jesus is, and then if that's not mixing up enough, the last heading in the chapter is that there's a dispute over whose children Jesus' opponents are. And then that's when you feel like, man, we're really just trying to find reasons to have disputes, aren't we? Um, So a, a lot of you that know me know that uh, unresolved conflict is is my kryptonite. I just can't, if I feel like I haven't resolved all conflict, then I, I feel uh, very insecure. And maybe that's another reason why I don't want to teach on this the rest of this chapter. Um, I, for some reason, I carved out three weeks for it, though, because there's three sections. So just a glutton for punishment. Anyhow, we'll be picking this story up in John chapter 8, verse 12 today. You can turn there. And, uh, and I'll just pray. Lord, uh, we are people who just want to, to hear your voice. We want to know the things that are on your heart for us. And as we turn to the scriptures today, we just ask that you would uh, open our hearts to receive uh, those things that you have for us. Um, as it was said at the end of chapter 7, you alone have the words of eternal life. And we long to hear those words today. So speak to us, Holy Spirit. And uh, transform us by uh, this opportunity to look into the scriptures and study them together. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll start in John chapter 8, verse 12. Uh, When we left Jesus back in chapter 7, there was all kinds of disputes there as well over who he was. He's in Jerusalem. He's teaching at the festival. Uh, The people there don't know whether to believe him or not. Uh, and and he's inviting people to come to him and have rest. And there's the confession from Peter that he's the only one who has eternal life. Um, but as we move on into chapter 8, there's similar invitations and there's similar hesitation and dispute and controversy about it all. So we'll start reading in 8 verse 12 together. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus declares, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I think that sounds pretty great, and there's not a lot to argue about there. And and it, oftentimes the bumper sticker versions of Jesus's words just sound great. Like you could put that verse on a bumper sticker and we could all, you know, drive around feeling good about ourselves if we have the light. Uh, But as is the case, the story doesn't end here. There's a lot more to these words, and the the Pharisees challenge him right away. Verse 13, the Pharisees challenge him, and they say, Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. What are they talking about? Well, the Pharisees are keepers of the law, and in the law of Moses, there's a rule that governs the convicting of people of wrongdoing. So if someone's being accused of a crime, they will not be convicted of that crime if there's only one witness who says they did it. One witness was deemed insufficient to prove something by the law of Moses. There had to be two 
or three people all testifying to the same thing, their stories corroborating together to provide uh, provide the truth of what has happened. And, and if there wasn't that, then we couldn't, we couldn't really base any kind of justice off of the testimony of one person. And so the Pharisees are challenging Jesus, saying, hey, you're coming, proclaiming these things are true, but you're your own witness. And so we don't feel that your testimony is valid by the law that we've been living by. Jesus answers them, and he says, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. This is the part where I start to feel like, oh, man, what is he talking about? I don't want to talk about this. Um, first off, Jesus says, and you notice it. He just, they come to him and they say, the law says this. You're on the offsides on the law, you know, so we don't have to listen to you. And right away, he's, he's inserting himself into the world as somehow greater than the law. He says, even though I testify about myself, my testimony is still valid. And so either the law doesn't apply to me in the same way that it applies to you, or maybe your understanding of this law isn't quite correct. I was thinking a little bit about what these people have done, where they've taken a law that was given specifically for accusing people of crimes, and then they're now applying it to the one who's not accusing anyone of a crime, but trying to proclaim the truth of who he is. I thought, I wonder how often God means for us to, to, to take something a certain way. And because there's not a whole lot of, of comments that he makes about something else, or because we just don't have, you know, full understanding of everything that he intends, we start to sort of spitball on our own and we decide, well, I'm going to have this apply to that. I'm going to have this apply to that. And we kind of build our own criteria for people to measure up to. Jesus says to them, my testimony is valid even if it is myself because I know where I've come from and I know where I'm going. You guys have no idea where I've come from and you have no idea where I'm going. Now, I, I don't think he's talking about his own travel plans there in the next week or his travel plans from the prior week. I think he's talking about this idea that in him the fullness of the eternal God is dwelling. And you imagine what kind of perspective the eternal one might have into the world and where everything's headed and, and what's going on. And here he is speaking to his creation, these finite beings who are, who are questioning him on his judgment, questioning him on the things that he claims are true. And I think in a sense he's saying to them, look, you guys have no idea of the eternal things. With your finite minds, you can't even grasp it. I have lived it all. I've gazed into eternity past and eternity future, and I've seen, I've seen it all. My testimony is valid because I know what I'm talking about. Maybe a helpful analogy is let's just pretend for a minute that I'm the only one in the room who knows how to perform a particular mathematical function. And I put it up there on the screen, and you're all looking at it with question marks in your head, and you're thinking, I have no idea how to do this. Now, this is just hypothetical, because I guarantee there's some people in the room who are probably better than me at math. But hypothetically, you have no idea. And then I show you how to solve it, and, and just because you have no idea, you have to accept my testimony, right? 
If I'm the only one who knows what I'm talking about, as Jesus is the only one in the room in this moment with eternal perspective, then he's the only one who can validate his own testimony. They're just simply not in a position to do it because of their ignorance. This is how Jesus is with these religious leaders. They're wholly ignorant to the things of eternity, and yet Jesus has had his head around eternity before eternity existed. I've said it before in the book of John. I look at these religious leaders and I see a lot of I see a lot more of myself in them than I care to admit. And I was thinking about this whole idea of Jesus coming to them and saying, look, I can talk about I can say what I'm saying because I understand it and you don't. And I think about the different things that Jesus maybe says in Scripture or the different ways that he challenges even norms in our society. And I think I'm reminded, who am I to say to him, oh, you can't say that. Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. It should be the other way around, right? I should be the one saying, look, I can't even get my head around eternity. So who am I to say what Jesus should or shouldn't say? Jesus continues, he says in verse 15, you judge by human standards, and yet I pass judgment on no one. To these Pharisees, he's saying to them, you make your judgments. You see the world, you see what's happening, and you make your judgments by human standards. We judge by what we see. We judge by what we understand. And maybe you've experienced this before. Something happens, and you rush to judgment. This happens a lot in my parenting life. Kid does something, or I think they forgot to do something, and I rush to judgment. And my eyes are bulging, and my voice is raised, and I'm telling them, I can't believe you did this. And they're like, oh, well, this is what happened. And I, oh, darn it. Now I have to apologize again. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that. We judge by human standards. Remember the story last year, this woman who was caught in adultery? And the crowds are judging her by human standards. And by human standards, they feel justified in bringing her before Jesus, trying to trap him with her situation. They feel justified in picking up stones and, and murdering her. They feel totally justified in all that judgment. And then Jesus comes into the scenario, and with his divine perspective, with his eternal perspective, he looks at her and he's like, you know what the right thing is to do right now? Do you know what's going to be best for everybody involved? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus chooses to forgive her. Those who know nothing, comparatively, right? Those who know nothing are quick to pick up stones. The one who knows everything says forgiveness is a really good solution for this problem. I really think that we need to be careful about judging because our knowledge is so limited and our standards are so human. So often, the best we can do is talk about behaviors. And our God is a God who is all about transforming hearts. And so, thank God, he sent his Holy Spirit to help lift us up beyond just behavior modification in our faithfulness to God. He's the one who transforms our hearts. Jesus says, you judge by human standards, I judge no one. Then he says in verse 16, but if I do judge... Just like, I don't, he just said he judges no one. And then he said, if I do judge, and this is where I start to feel like, Jesus, come on. 
Are you intentionally being confusing? I, I don't know what's going on. But he says, if I do judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me, and in your own law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. Now he's back to square one, right? I'm the one who testifies for myself, and my other witness is the Father who sent me. He's gotten there in a little bit of a roundabout way, but he's essentially bringing it back to this original accusation. Here you are by yourself saying that your testimony is true. He goes around a few circles, and then he comes back to you, but look, I am actually not alone. My father is standing here with me. I stand with the one who sent me. I'm the one who testifies for myself, and my other witness is the father who's with me. You want me to fulfill the law? Okay, I've fulfilled it. I'm not here alone. Jesus saw the father with him wherever he went. I've talked a little bit about this men's Bible study at the Three Rivers Mall uh, a little bit. Our, uh, we, are, we are holding down the fort over there at the food court at the Three Rivers Mall, and uh, it's great. We had a drop-in this week. Some random guy came along and hijacked our meeting. <laughs> Rob, you handled that so well. I really appreciated having you there. Um, <laughs> I did, I was, the guy was, I, anyways, Rob handled great. Okay. Uh, anyways, we were talking this week about the tabernacle because we're in Hebrews chapter 9, and one of the details about the tabernacle that, that came up was when God, uh, told Moses to build the tabernacle and set it all up. He told him, I want you to put the tabernacle in the center of the camp. And the tabernacle was the place where the presence of God was, you know, in the inner tent, inner, inner tent. Uh, you had the Ark of the Covenant and, and God's presence was in that place. And you think about the significance of it being in the center of the camp. So in the center of the life of the nation, God dwells. And wherever the people go, and whatever they do and wherever they set up camp, what's right in the middle? God's presence. He's there with them. I really believe that as Jesus went about and did his thing, he really saw God as the center of his life. He really saw the Father there with him. It didn't matter where he went, God was with him. God was in the middle. I think Jesus held on to this truth constantly. My father's here with me. My life is revolving around my relationship with him. He's, he's with me in the beginning of my day. He's with me at the end of my day. And I'm here and he's standing here with me. The Pharisees hear him say that his father's standing there with him. And in verse 19, they ask him, well, where is your father? Now, some of you might read that and think, well, yeah, he's talking about his father standing there with him and he can't, we can't see God. So are they just commenting on the fact that his father is apparently not right there? And I think that's part of it. But I also think for the Pharisees, this is a bit of their gotcha moment, right? Because Jesus has become a somewhat notorious character in their world. And they know that his parents were Mary and Joseph. Uh, but there's probably been some rumors swirling around uh, at least around Nazareth, oh, yeah, you know, Jesus was born less than nine months after Joseph and Mary tied the knot and do the math there. And we're not so sure about his parentage. We're not so sure that his father really is who he said he is. Joseph was a noble man. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have done something like that. And so it's almost like the Pharisees are like, oh, I'm so glad you brought up your father. 
and they just throw in a little bit of a jab there. Oh, yeah, where is your father, by the way? Who is your father? Gotcha. Jesus says to them, you do not know me or my father. He says, if you knew me, you would know my father also. And here we're getting to the real heart of the Pharisees' problem. The problem for the Pharisees is that they haven't started with God. God's not living in the center of their camp anymore, which isn't necessarily all their fault. They're a product of their culture. They're a product of what's happened. So, uh, so at, at a point when the kingdom of Israel was established, David went to God and said, look, I'm living in a really nice house. I want to build you a nice house. God says to David, if I wanted a nice house, I'd ask you for it. I'm paraphrasing here. David says, I really want to build you a house. God says, all right, you can build me a temple. So they build him a temple in Jerusalem. And God's presence is no longer in the center of the camp, but the nation is now sprawled out. And there are people who live their lives outside of Jerusalem. So where's God? God's in the temple in Jerusalem. Where are we? We're now far away, right? And now this is a great image of the fallenness of humanity. Because Adam and Eve would have never even been tempted to eat the fruit if they'd have remembered that God was there with them, right? And so this whole idea of God wanting his creation to know that he is with us and near us gets messed up and faded at times. And at times, our, our own religious devotion to God can get in the way of that. How different would your life look if you believed that your father was standing with you wherever you went all week long and not just when you gathered in the right building, the right place or around the right people? He says, you don't know me and you don't know my father. If they were mindful of God's presence in their midst, if they were mindful of his agenda for humanity, I really think the Pharisees would have looked at Jesus, they'd have seen the miracles that he was doing, they'd have heard his testimony, and they would have been saying to one another, oh my God, I think this is the one. I think this is the Messiah. But that's not what they ever said to each other. All they saw was a false teacher. Who's his dad? Who's his mom? Where's he from? They're judging by human standards. What's his education level? What's his credentials? What's his agenda? How much of what we already believe does this guy agree with? Where they should have seen a Messiah, they saw just a false teacher. They can't see the Messiah because they don't know God. Of course, this is, this is the commentary of the New Testament on the, the nation uh, or on, on the Jews at the time, right? And it's a pretty damning statement. You have the people of God who've been preserved by him who don't recognize him when he shows up in their midst. And it really didn't have, it didn't have to be this way. There were Jews who recognized Jesus, right? In, in Christmas time, we have the story out of Luke chapter 2. We have Simeon, this super old guy who was a prophet. Uh, it, it, it talks about hey, he's living in Jerusalem. He's righteous and devout. He's just waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's been waiting for the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was on him, and, and on this certain day, the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he wouldn't die before seeing the Messiah. 
And then, the, and then this one day, the Holy Spirit moved him to go to the temple. You should go to the temple today. And he goes to the temple, and he's there when Jesus' parents bring him in to be dedicated. And Simeon, who lives his life with God at the center, takes one look at this baby and is like, this is him. This is the one. This is the Messiah. He takes Jesus in his arms. He praises God. He says, Sovereign Lord, now you can dismiss your servant in peace. Because my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations. This is a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. How can someone look at a brand new baby and say something like that? Because Simeon was faithful. Because God was in the center of Simeon's life. And his paradigm for the world around him worked from God into everything else. Rather than working everything else into some kind of conception of God. He wasn't the only one. You had a prophetess, Anna, who was there as well. She sees Jesus. She's super excited and telling everyone in the temple, this is the one. This is him. This is the redemption of Israel. This is our moment. Earlier in the book of John, we talked about John the Baptist, another Jew, who saw Jesus and says, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said, This is the one who's come. This is the whole reason I've been baptizing, is for this guy. He's God's chosen one. He's God's son. John began with God, and so he saw Jesus clearly. Not everyone missed it, just everyone who was judging by human standards missed it. I had a friend who confronted me on judging by human standards recently. Um, he's a pastor friend of mine. We were having coffee together, and, and I was complaining to him about people who are really in the, into the, like the prophetic movement, right? And, um, and I was complaining, like, one, you know, why do they have to be so weird? Two, all of their prophecies seem to be guided more by politics than the Spirit of God. Three, why do they talk in King James vernacular? Like, why? And, I, and I'm complaining. And, um, and my friend says this. He says, I wonder if you started with God rather than the people, I wonder if your perspective would be different. I mean, what if you just assumed that God was somehow behind the scenes working in them and through them, what might be different? You know, Romans 8 comes to mind, right? We know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Does your paradigm of the world involve a creator who is active and involved, working behind the scenes, and everything starts with that and is filtered through that? Because that's a different paradigm. If the beginning place for your interpretation of reality is there is a creator who has made us, who has shared his authority with us and is inviting us to rule over creation with him, if your paradigm begins with we are made in God's image and God is because God is using us to reveal himself to the world. If you start in that place, maybe the controversy is a little bit less. When I start with this assumption, I feel like I can actually see Jesus at work 
in the lives of his followers. I can see God working through people. We talked last week uh, about this divine human partnership, right? And God is present, and he doesn't mind working with flawed human beings. And he really doesn't mind working through weird people at times. I was thinking about prophets, and, and you know, the prophets in the Old Testament were really weird, too. Uh, Isaiah was walking around naked prophesying. I, I just feel like if that if someone's doing that, I'm not listening to anything they're saying, right? I'm not. Jeremiah was hiding his undies in a rock by the Euphrates. I'm coming back. I'm like, okay, I see the tattered undies, Jeremiah. Like, I don't, I don't get it. Can you just, can we not be weird about it? Hosea marries a prostitute and then gives his kids all of these bizarre names. It's like, come on, dude, don't brand them with that for their whole life, just to make a point. Ezekiel ate a scroll. You guys are thinking of that kid from third grade, right? The one that eats, eats paper. He eats a scroll. He lays on his side for 390 days. He's cooking his food over poop. <laughs> come on. Sure, they might be a little weird and a little flawed, but these are people who were in partnership with the divine being. And he didn't mind working through their weirdness and their flaws to reveal himself to humanity. I brought up the words last week from Matthew 5. Don't say to your brother, here, let me help you with that speck in your own eye while you're ignoring the plank in your own. I really think that when we start with God, we begin to see evidence of a holy God who's in partnership with flawed people all the time. And that's exactly the recipe for how the kingdom grows. Why? Well, because all the people are flawed. If God wasn't willing to stoop to the level to work through flawed people, he wouldn't be able to work through any of us. If we can start with a God who is present in his creation, working through things, then I think when we see each other, we just might see what's really there. Maybe a prophet. Maybe an evangelist. Maybe somebody who's really just trying their best to make a difference in the world and follow Jesus as best they can. Not somebody to be criticized, not a church to be criticized or another congregation that's doing everything wrong. But people who are in partnership with God. And if God's not afraid to be in partnership with me, I don't want to stop him from being in partnership with anyone. When we start with a human viewpoint, we just see whatever we want to see. When you start with a human viewpoint, then just like everyone else, you're going to judge everybody in your in-group a little more favorably and everybody on the out-group a little less favorably. In other words, just like everybody else in our world, you give a pass to anyone who's just like you and you give a fail to anyone who's not like you. That's what we do when we judge by human standards. If you're like me, you get a pass. If you're not like me, I've got a few rocks over here. I'm going to pick them up. I'm going to start throwing them. Jesus takes a roundabout way of getting there. But ultimately, I think he's confronting the religious leaders of the people of God on the fact that they do not know God. They're so married to the law and their traditions that their entire paradigm starts with that. Their paradigm does not start with 
What is God doing in the world today? This section of scripture ends with this statement in verse 20. Verse 20, it says, He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offering was put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. For some reason, John feels it important to point out that Jesus is saying all this, this controversy has happened with the religious leaders, this confrontation has happened where he's saying to them, you don't know my father. Um, they're saying to him, you're a false witness and a fake. All of this happened at the place where the offering was. That's important to note because, as is the case in, in many religious institutions, the offering is conveniently located so that all the public can get there. And so here Jesus is at the temple in one of the most publicly accessible places, the place where the offerings are left. All of this is happening right out in the open. And yet, somehow, Jesus survives this because John says his time had not yet come. John's perspective begins with God, and in this situation, he sees the divine hand of the Creator somehow preserving and protecting Jesus' life because it's just not the right time. I think verse 20 is sort of thrown in there as just a reminder that God's divine hand is in the background, working all the time. And we'll do really well to ask ourselves, especially when we're faced with disputes or there's controversy or we're feeling like we want to criticize someone else or somebody else is criticizing us. We're faced with the responsibility to ask ourselves, where is God in this? How might my perspective be changed on this person if I start with God and I work down from there rather than going the other way? How's God desiring to use this person in my life or this movement in our society or this other congregation in our community? How's God desiring to use this part of his church? And, 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 and importantly, too, how is God inviting me to be a part of this partnership that's going on so that I can be a blessing to the kingdom and to the body of Christ rather than just being another Christian throwing stones. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your incredible grace. We thank you for your patience with each of us. We thank you for those moments when you uh, just draw us back to beginning with you. Lord, I'm thankful that you are patient with me when I am quick to judge, other believers especially. Lord, we want to be people who really add to one another's faith, who really enrich each other. And, uh, and, and we know that, that confrontation is a part of that process. Uh, and we know, too, that there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. And so we just ask for your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom. Give us wisdom this week as we walk together. Holy Spirit, shape our perspective that all things would begin with you and would point to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't think we have time for discussion. I had a verse I wanted to read uh, to set the table for communion today. And this is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, it's kind of along these same lines. Uh -huh. Paul writes, I'm reading out of the message because I, I just like this version. Uh, Paul writes, I assume I'm addressing believers who are now mature. I assume that every Sunday morning of you guys. Uh, I assume I'm addressing believers who are now mature. Draw your own conclusions. When we drink the cup of blessing, 
aren't we taking into ourselves the blood, the very life of Christ? And isn't it the same with the loaf of bread that we break and eat? Don't we take into ourselves the body, the very life of Christ? Because there is one loaf, our manyness becomes oneness. Christ doesn't become fragmented in us. Rather, we become unified in him. We don't reduce Christ to what we are. Rather, he raises us to what he is. This is Paul talking about division in the church and talking about the the uh, sacrament of communion and the unity that is present in that. And each week we come together and we share uh, one loaf and we share one cup, three loaves, three cups. Ah, darn it. Um, but the idea being behind that, that Christ's body is not divided. And I think one of the things that I'm confident God is doing behind the team, worship team, you can come up and, and get ready. We'll sing another song for communion. But I think one of the things that I'm really confident God is doing behind the scenes is that he is working to unify us together under himself. He's working to break down the walls of hostility. He's working to break down the prejudice and the, and the things in us that say we're right, they're wrong. And he's bringing everyone together under Christ, under himself. And so today, as we just turn to the table and, and we share the one bread and the one cup, uh, I just want it to be a reminder for us that uh, not only that we are one together, but we're one with I don't know, millions of congregations around the world who have come and done this very same act today. Or certainly the ones that don't do it every week, you know, they'll all do it probably at some point this year. Uh, we're all one. And, uh, and Christ is not divided in us. Rather, he is bringing us into the unity of who, who he is. And so, uh, so Lord, we just thank you uh, that your body was broken for us we thank you that you have invited us to a table where we all get to share in one sacrifice together. Lord, we thank you for our brothers and sisters who share in that sacrifice and who you have made us one with, and yet they're very different from us. We're so thankful that they're different because of, one, the way that challenges us, two, the people that they are suited so perfectly to reach in our community who would never come here and feel comfortable And we're thankful that they're different than us because we just trust you to make people the way that you, that you make them. To redeem them into who you're calling them to be. We trust your work in other people's lives.